Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am Sarah. I'm a MedPeds ID fellow. And I have a new friend here with me today, Jonathan. I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, Sarah. It's so great to be here on the show. I'm a uh, second year infectious disease fellow in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, big time fan of the show and so excited to be here. Um, so jo- Jonathan and I have not met in real life, although I feel like I know you because we've done enough stuff virtually. So today's episode, we're not doing the sort of case-based setting, but we are going to talk about some clinical cases and clinical pearls. But we are going to chat about some highlights and things that we learned from ID Week 2021, which just finished last week. But before we jump in, I'm still going to kick off the show by asking about a little piece of culture. And I'm actually going to provide one today, but I want Jonathan to start Do you want to share something that you uh, have enjoyed recently? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to share kind of an oldie but a goodie, a a longtime favorite uh, that my wife and I enjoy and we're currently watching right now. And I thought it was appropriate uh, given the time of year with Halloween coming up. And so that is the uh, Walking Dead series, which is on Netflix. I think the uh, 10th season is now out, which I have not quite yet watched because it's only live and not on Netflix. Um, (laughs) But actually, we started watching the um, kind of adjunct series with it, the Fear the Walking Dead series. Um, So that's been a little bit of a new uh, experience that we've been watching lately. Nice. Well, I was... (laughs) I I picked two things because one is I feel like if you have been living under a rock and have not heard of Squid Game yet, that uh, this would be a great chance to mention it. For those who have not already watched it or binged it like I did, it's basically this contest of players who are all deeply in debt and they're pulled in and asked to play a children's game for a chance to win like a boatload of money. But there are literally deadly consequences to the game. I realize if this is a bit too... Uh, dystopian and uh, I will add that it's a it's very violent Um, I had a more friendly alternative which is that I watched Star Wars Visions basically they took I think seven Japanese animation studios and sort of told these different Star Wars stories and I will admit that not all the stories are that compelling always the animation is just amazing I I mean I I love uh, animation and so that was a real treat for me but yeah so I don't usually share share piece because I could talk forever (laughs) Uh, I didn't have a clever name for today's uh, episode or segment I thought about like febrile favorites or febrile faves but I think relying on alliteration can only get me so far (laughs) Um, so I was going to suggest that people have ideas for naming segments like this or episodes like this. I will welcome them. The punnier, the better. In our recap, I, as you may expect, it is not comprehensive. We can't cover every session and it's heavily biased by our own personal interest. Um, but that being said, I think there's a lot of things that everyone will find interesting and hopefully we can Uh, update you or encourage you to watch something. I thought we could open it up by talking about the Fellows Day workshop. So for residents and fellows who haven't been to ID Week, there are these sort of pre-meeting workshops that you can register for. And the Fellows Days are awesome because they have 
really cool cases in real life. Normally you'd be meeting a bunch of people and then they have some sort of like career development programming. And so for the Pediatric Fellows Day, which is done through PIDS or the Pediatric ID Society, I picked one case to highlight, which was a case of Legionella and a neonate that was ultimately attributed to a humidifier. And Jonathan may not know this, but this is like a very uncommon pathogen in in this age group, so neonates. So it's just a really good reminder of a couple things that, one, it, they talk through the differential diagnosis of fulminant sepsis in an otherwise normal neonate. So that's very PEDS-specific. But I think sort of generalizing things, the other pearls are considering Legionella if you have a GNR on your gram stain that's not growing in routine cultures. And then for those studying for boards, there is a really nice picture of BCYE auger and associating that with Legionella so that I hope it will pop up on boards and everyone will get it correct. (laughs) There's another Fellows Day that I call Adult Fellows Day, but I think it's technically just Fellows Day. Jonathan, did you have like a favorite case from that one? Yeah, I actually, um, there was one that really just stumped me and I think it actually stumped uh, much of the panel as well, which was a... uh, a case of a of a young male with HIV, pretty advanced disease, uh, consistent with AIDS, that presented with uh, diffuse lymphadenopathy, like a pericardial effusion, a big cavitary lung lesion, and this kind of unusual rash. And the final diagnosis ended up being disseminated cryptococcus, but uh, it wasn't really clear that they had a meningitis. Um, they had some signs of it, but not really um, symptoms of it per se. And I think it's just a really good example of an uncommon presentation of, you know, a fairly uncommon disease. We see it as infectious disease doctors, but it's not exactly something that's seen every day. And really just in, uh, in our immunocompromised host population, keeping that differential broad, even if it doesn't fit the classic presentation, um, yeah. someone with really advanced HIV that has uh, disseminated cryptococcus almost always has headache and, and not lymphadenopathy. So it's just... Um, really interesting case uh, that's different than than usual. Yeah, I feel like they tend to like those uncommon presentations of things we see a lot. Uh, I, I had written some notes down just about the, there was a severe HSV hepatitis in a pregnant patient. And I, I think remembering that the lack of or not having herpetic lesions doesn't really rule out HSV. Um, and depending on that could really lead to a delay in diagnosis. So just a nice remind, reminder about both fulminant HSV hepatitis in pregnancy, but I'll also mention hepatitis E um, would be another kind of like a similar clinical presentation. Uh, The next thing I was just going to mention, because we're going to talk about some of the other challenging case sessions, is for the Edward Cass lecture this year, they invited Patricia Whitley-Williams. And very unfortunately, there were so many technical hiccups that basically took up like two thirds of her time. And so as of when we were recording today, I I think the ID Week platform still just has the like 10 minute uh, abbreviated version that she sort of did on the fly. But I'm hoping that ID Week and or Febrile or PIDS that we can sort of give her a platform to give this talk in its entirety. Um, Because she was reflecting on the epidemic of structural racism within the COVID pandemic and trying to appeal to ID physicians to join that fight against structural racism and, and thinking about strategies to reduce disparities. I know I have talked to a couple people. I think a lot of people felt like that was a real loss to not hear the full talk. So 
hopefully more to come on that so that we can keep the discussion going. So I'm a little biased and it's probably why I made Febra as I like the case sessions that are done at ID Week. Between the two of us, we I think we hit almost all of them or almost all of them. So we were just going to go through and just throw out a couple pearls. Uh, so the first one I had was the diagnostic clinical cases, which are sort of the micro oriented ones. I learned that there are other mycobacterial species other than MTB that can cause cording, which I had no idea. And if people don't know what cording looks like, if you Google it, it's so pretty. <laughs> the next session I saw was the PEDS ID case sessions, which I'm sure Jonathan didn't go to this one. Um, <laughs> but there was a leptospirosis case, which uh, was a good reminder about how the renal injury is non-oliguric. And we do have an old febrile episode on that. And they had this crazy case of Bartonella endocarditis that basically took place over two years and was sort of mimicking an inherited autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome. The My favorite quote from ID Week is they joked about how there's always a cat. It's always the cat's fault. And the phrase, find the smoking cat, which <laughs> I love, and apparently is uh, quoting Terry Dermody, who's at Pitt now. But um, anyways, that's just a great ID phrase I need to add. And maybe next we can do the HIV session, which Jonathan went to. Yeah, Absolutely. So this was, uh, they had several great cases of uh, HIV and, and really difficult opportunistic infections and clinical scenarios that people can run into. And so the first case was one that um, I did not have much experience with. It was a patient um, who initially presented with several opportunistic infections, including CMV retinitis with retinal necrosis of that eye. And uh, he got on treatment and uh, became well-controlled on uh, antiretroviral therapy. But uh, despite being connected with uh, his HIV providers, he really never got to see an ophthalmologist outside of that, uh, which apparently is one of the guideline recommendations for follow-up for CMV retinitis. And this case, unfortunately, illustrates the reason why. Several years, actually, after that initial diagnosis, he developed vision loss and presented to the ER where they found intravitreal hemorrhage as a result of the neovascularization process from the ischemia of chronic retinal detachment. There's kind of a lot of things leading up to the other, but he potentially missed out on the retinal detachment being diagnosed on follow-up, which could have prevented the ischemia and then the the development of uh, vascularization which they then also could have treated in an ophthalmology office. And so this also was a result of a a CMV immune recovery uveitis, a type of iris syndrome, which can occur years later, which I was not aware that you could get iris that far out in the future from this disease. And so I learned that uh, you really need to work with your ophthalmology colleagues and get your patients to an ophthalmologist even after their initial diagnosis of CMV retinitis, if you see that, could definitely make a change in outcomes. And that was really what the presenter learned as well, despite their efforts. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like we don't see CMV retinitis that much. I, I, I guess like our generation, like the only times I've seen it are in very immunocompromised patients, but non-HIV related. Absolutely. The, the advent of uh, effective 
ART has totally changed the landscape of what we see in our patients, um, which is ultimately a good thing, but does make us less familiar when we see these more unusual cases. Yeah. And then uh, another one I saw, um, and this is going to be a little bit of a throwback to um, the febrile uh, HIV series back uh, (laughs) last summer where a uh, you know young female presents with HIV uh, in there she's on um dalitegravir with tenofovir alafenamide fumarate and emtricitabine and ultimately finds out at that visit that she's 10 weeks pregnant and so the the big lessons for this were you know what ART regimen should we use in the setting of early pregnancy and the guidelines now recommend to just keep using the same ART as long as it is a safe and effective regimen during pregnancy and there is prior kind of controversy about dalutegravir and the risk of neural tube defects. And a lot of that has abated over time. And so the thought for this case was to continue her on her current regimen and also to be very wary of coassista in pregnancy due to changes in the physiology and the pharmacodynamics of that uh, drug. The other Part of this that came up, of course, was regarding breastfeeding with the differences in recommendations between the CDC and the WHO regarding um, breastfeeding and HIV. I thought the presenter used a really great outline of how to assess the patient's situation, go through what the patient's motivations for breastfeeding are, trying to make sure they understand the risk of transmission, as it is recommended by the CDC not to uh, breastfeed in HIV. But also that uh, you really want to work with the patient as part of a team that's really working for the child's best health. And then just try to negotiate the risk and and try to mitigate it as best you can. And I would definitely encourage people to check out those prior uh, febrile episodes and infographics. I'm I'm giving a plug here for Sarah (laughs) on her show. Um, We we uh, can get as meta as we want. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, those are things I think that no matter how many times that you encounter them, we're always just a little bit uncomfortable with and trying to become more familiar with that happens with more experience and hearing that from experts in the field. Yeah. Uh, I went to the transplant ID case session and the case that really wowed me was a, a case of Rothia which we often think of as a cause of bacteremia, particularly in neutropenic patients who have uh, severe mucositis. But it also can be associated with sepsis, pneumonia, and severe meningitis, which is uh, what happened in the case that was presented. And unfortunately, you can have sort of delayed symptoms, particularly among neutropenic patients, which uh, is not too surprising. And unfortunately, sometimes those patients are maybe receiving high dose steroids. So just like a really interesting case that uh, I, I definitely have only seen Rathi in the setting of bloodstream infections. And then the last case session I had was the tropical medicine cases, which I caught on replay. And so I wrote down the chromoblastomycosis case, uh, which doesn't come up clinically for us. I feel like very often, um, which basically is a chronic fungal infection of skin or soft tissue with dematiaceous fungi. Uh, But there are just some really pretty images on there. And this is characterized histologically by these sclerotic bodies, or they're called copper pennies. They had a nice image of that. Mm -hmm. And they reminded, put a little note about how CARD9 genetic deficiency is associated with more severe disease in this setting. 
And then there was a Babesia case and a leftist versus case, both of which we've covered in prior episodes. And we got a little bit of a shout out there. Um, but what I really appreciated is they took several moments to pause and talk about relying on your network and your community to ask about cases and that it's okay to be humble and look it up. Um, and so I think just modeling that and hearing people who are very experienced say that is always, um, is always nice. Agreed. That's uh, something that we definitely think learn with time is that uh, our mentors, you know, you know, even uh, after many years of experience, you just don't see things like chromoblastomycosis very often. <laughs> you got to go ask someone who knows what they're doing with that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're going to start off with our first section of sessions, and they're kind of split up into things that Sarah and I have our individual interests in. And so this first section, we're going to call it endovascular infections. <laughs> includes a, a wide uh, breadth and depth of different endovascular type infections. And so I'm going to start off with the first session, which was the clinical controversies in Staph aureus bacteremia session. And the first lecture I want to highlight was from uh, Rizwan Sohail, who had a great discussion on diagnosis and prognosis of staph bacteremia and a lot of a lot of upcoming ideas. And so the first one I want to highlight is the so-called skip phenomenon, where you have blood cultures that can be intermittently positive on uh, serial testing. So he highlights one paper in which uh, about 4% of patients with staph bacteremia had the skip phenomenon, which was frequently associated with cases with prolonged bacteremia. And so the, the clinical pearl here is to really be wary of a single negative blood culture in staph bacteremia and that in patients that are high risk, which he qualifies that as men who are over the age of 65, patients on chronic immunosuppression and cases of prolonged bacteremia, you really want to get serial negative blood cultures because you risk uh, really not having achieved appropriate source control and getting a hold of the infection. He also has really good discussions on decision tools as far as when to get an echocardiogram and has a great overview of that, highlighting things like the Versta scoring system, the Predict scoring system, and the positive scoring system. And so those help to delineate who needs uh, echocardiography, especially TEE. And so I uh, encourage people to check that section out. As well as for a good discussion on PET-CT, I'm going to talk a little bit about PET-CT and a few of these different uh, endovascular infection uh, lectures, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of really good evidence for that in Staph aureus bacteremia. The next lecture was from Todd Lee, who did a really great uh, job looking at future studies that are coming out in Staph bacteremia. And he, he started off by saying that there are is a difference between randomized care and random care. And really that randomized care comes from well-designed trials that really solves controversial areas in uh, an area of science, whereas random care comes from observational studies that are full of confounding and biases because the care was done randomly and not based on high-quality data. And so his emphasis is that we really need high-quality data so that we're providing the best care that's consistent based on controlled trials. And so there are a lot of really good trials coming out in staph bacteremia for us to look forward to in the next several years. But I just wanted to highlight a few of them. One is the DOTS trial, which is going to look at VANC and DAPTO versus Dalbovansen. So 
Double Vanson's a, a new kid on the block, and we've used it a lot for staph bacteremia at our institution. But I would really feel a lot better if we had some strong evidence that supports that uh, <laughs> that uh, sort of random care, I guess, that we're providing at this time. Um, it would also be a really good option for those patients that aren't able to stay in the hospital or, or get pick lines. And so that could really improve some some care outcomes. The next one is the SNAP trial, which I, I do believe um, Todd Lee is involved in himself. And it's a, it's a pragmatic trial that uses this Bayesian framework that I think is just really novel and, and interesting. And it's going to look at multiple different areas, uh, including VANC with or without cefazolin for staph bacteremia to help answer that question. It's going to look at uh, penicillin-susceptible staph aureus and see if you need penicillin or an anti-staphylococcal agent like flucloxacillin versus he did an, he's going to do another study um, looking at cefazolin versus an anti-staphylococcal penicillin, flucloxacillin as well, which is an age-old question that we debate all the time. And it would be really nice to have a high-quality trial that answers that question. And then the always controversial oral step-down therapy for staph aureus bacteremia. Um, something else that I think many of us would love to have a great answer for. Another few trials, one of them is the CERT trial, looking at cefazolin with ertapenem versus cefazolin alone. So another combination therapy trial for MSSA. And then the rodeo trial. This one is kind of similar to POET. So it's looking at oral levofloxacin and rifampin as a step-down therapy for, for staph aureus endocarditis. So that, that's, um, you know, right there with a lot of the osteoarticular joint infection uh, trials as well. There's the DISRUPT trial, which looks at standard of care versus a staph lysin agent called uh, Excepacase. Hopefully I got that one right. Um, that one, that'll be a fun one to say on the wards if this becomes part of standard of care. So that one's at uh, MRSA. And so that's not even an antibiotic. It's actually an adjunct agent that's being added. So that's a yeah. pretty cool uh, study. And then uh, this one was quite, con I think will bring up a lot of controversy when it's published is the SAB7 trial, looking at seven versus 14 days for uncomplicated staph bacteremia. So that one will also be something we look forward to. Uh, his lecture is just full of great details on the design of the trial and when to expect results, how they're powered, et cetera. So if you're really into the future of clinical trials and staph bacteremia, I would recommend that one. The next session uh, is titled Hot Issues in Enterococcus Faecalis Bacteremia and Endocarditis. Um, Enterococcus is becoming one of my more favorite organisms the more I learn about it uh, because it's just resistant to so many antibiotics. We have such a tough time treating it. It can come from a variety of different sources related to endocarditis. It, it's exciting in a, uh, in a difficult way, I think. Love-hate way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so we've got to do a lot more to improve the optimal management of, of this bacteria. And so the first lecture was from Juan Pericas from Spain, and he was uh, exploring the relationship between Enterococcus faecalis bacteremia and endocarditis and colonic neoplasms. So there has been an association similar to um, Strep gallolyticus with colonic neoplasms, particularly colon cancer, and Enterococcus faecalis bacteremia. So this is an area he's really um, exploring. And, you know, the, there's a lot of questions about what role Enterococcus faecalis plays. Is this really driving cancer formation? Or is it just kind of 
hanging along with it, or is it just taking advantage of the, of the fact that there's a breach in the colonic mucosa? But in particular, Enterococcus faecalis endocarditis has been associated with pretty high rates of uh, colonic lesions. And so there, his kind of expert opinion was to recommend colonoscopy in patients with Enterococcus faecalis endocarditis that had risk factors for colorectal cancer, like they're over the age of 50 or they have uh, a polyposis syndrome. And when they present with a community-acquired Enterococcus faecalis and an, or an unknown uh, source of bloodstream infection, that may be a place that we need to look. And I've seen a fair number of these where I'm like, I don't know where this is coming from. And it could be intracolonic at the end of the day. And that's really where we need to look um, is on outpatient follow-up. We don't know if that's true for bloodstream infections. And he's looking to answer that question in the future. Another uh, lecture from this series is from Anders Dahl uh, in Denmark. And I actually went to his session last year on Enterococcus faecalis bacteremia. But he was looking at the differences then between Enterococcus faecalis and Enterococcus faecium at the rates of endocarditis. And so it turns out they're totally different organisms as far as the rate of endocarditis, where the rate of uh, Enterococcus faecium is very, very low compared to the rates of Enterococcus faecalis, which is actually pretty high. This year, he focused entirely on Enterococcus faecalis and really made his argument that this needs to be changed in the Duke criteria that the endocarditis guidelines, which really say that, uh, you know, in order to consider enterococcus faecalis, a, what he calls a typical endocarditis bug, part of the major criterion in the microbiology, is that it has to be community acquired without a clear foci of infection. And so he goes through the history of the development of the Duke criteria and how staph bacteremia got added as one of the quote unquote typical endocarditis bugs and showed that the rates for Enterococcus faecalis are very similar to the rates of, for Staph aureus uh, for endocarditis. So the rate about 25% of infections having endocarditis found. Only 40% of endocarditis cases were of community onset, and only about 50% of the endocarditis cases had an unknown foci of infection. And so really, any Enterococcus faecalis should be considered as an endocarditis bug, not just those particular onsets. And he's done other work um, looking at some of the risk scoring stratification um, tools as far as who should get an echocardiogram. But the right answer really may be basically everyone similar to Staph aureus. And so my question for him, because I have some personal interest in PET CTs during this session, you know, I've, I've had a few cases of really tough cases where a patient has persistent enterococcus faecalis bloodstream infection that, you know, it looks like it's endocarditis, but you do the echocardiogram, you do the transesophageal echocardiogram, and you can't find a source. They don't have, you know, urinary tract infection, abdominal CT scan may be negative as well. And so I brought up, you know, should we do a PET CT on these folks? Um, turns out there's really not much data, but uh, Juan Perry Koss's expert opinion was this was probably a good modality. Uh, it, it provides three things. One, it looks for endocarditis in a different way. Two, it looks for another source of an undrained um, infection. And three, it could identify a, a GI malignancy that could be predisposing. Again, that's totally expert opinion, but look for these things with more universal echocardiogram, colonoscopy recommendations, and maybe some more studies on PET-CT for enterococcus faecalis in particular.
The next session I went to was on updates in natural and prosthetic vascular graft infections. This was actually a session I had also been highly anticipating. These are um, infections that we see not too uncommonly in the infectious disease world, but I'm very uncomfortable with what is going on with them as far as the, the depth of the infection, how much, how much vascular graft material is involved, how much was removed, why didn't it become removed? And then, you know, what am I going to do with long-term management of, of these patients, which is, uh, can be quite difficult and I think underappreciated. And so some things that I learned was the Samson criteria, which actually stratify the type of infection based on the depth and extent of the infection and how much the graft is involved. And so there's some really nice algorithms that tell you based on that information, how long uh, to treat, what type of antibiotics, and then what the surgical management should be. And so for me, that really provides context to the case, helps me understand my surgical colleagues, and then also provides some basic guidelines. Along those lines were criteria to actually diagnose a vascular graft infection, which are uh, similar to the Duke criteria, these are, but these are called the magic criteria. <laughs> which is a magic sounds cooler <laughs> <laughs> totally agree and so it's a compilation of clinical surgical radiologic and laboratory findings that really help define a vascular graft infection i think this lecture you know also taught me the importance of a multidisciplinary team I, I can help provide a few links i think for the for the show notes on kind of the european and the united states like guidance that's available they're not really straight guidelines per se, at least not the United States ones, uh, but they provide really good tools that I would have loved to have had earlier in my fellowship to treat these infections. And then just some pearls that I learned as well is that there are particular reasons for possible lifelong suppression of vascular graft infections. Things that you typically think of, MRSA, pseudomonas, and multidrug-resistant organisms, and fungi like candida, if any of those are involved, they may need antibiotics for a long time. Uh, if they've already required numerous surgeries for infections, if they end up putting a rifampin-bonded graft in for reconstruction in an emergency surgery, and then if there is extensive surrounding infection or they're not a good candidate for having future surgery. But along those lines was how to manage lifelong suppression. And again, the topic of PET-CTs came up. Uh, it sounds like in Europe, they're doing these a little bit more, and they tend to just be better tests as far as the sensitivity and specificity perspective compared to CT angiography. And it can help detect metastatic sites of infection, differentiate sterile inflammatory responses from infections, which is always an issue in someone receiving surgery. And then they're kind of expert discussion was, you know, should they use serial PET CTs over time, like at diagnosis, six months, a year, along with the clinical and laboratory markers to assess if someone can safely discontinue suppressive therapy, which is something that they've been trying. And so again, that's something that I don't think is standard of care by any means, but uh, is something that is going to be studied and could be a way to really assess that someone no longer needs uh, antibiotic prophylaxis, which could save them a lot of toxicity. Yeah. Um, and then I was going to sneak this into our sort of sort of endovascular section, um, but this actually was a paper from the top 10 papers in medical mycology with the clinical focus, which was from Tom Patterson. 
And I was actually really glad that he mentioned the American Academy of Ophthalmology recommendations on screening for endogenous candida and ophthalmitis. Um, so people may have heard that those recommendations suggested against routine consultation, sorry, eye, eye consultation for candidemia, arguing that it was a low value practice, that it's associated with cost and risk, uh, which many people know is in contrast to the IDSA candidiasis guidelines, which are from uh, 2016, so about five years ago or so. And I just really appreciate it because he outlined several of those reviews and papers that they sort of based that position on. And, you know, I think that it's controversial, right? We, I, I think that people have very different opinions on this. And obviously, it would be really nice if we had some sort of risk algorithm to tell us who needs that baseline eye exam. Have you had issues where you've gotten pushback on requesting an eye exam on a patient with candidemia? You know, Sarah, I actually haven't uh, gotten much pushback at our institution at, yet. Uh, that yeah. said, I, I don't know that I've had enough of those consults since those um, since those recommendations have come Same. out. So I will be curious to see if that does change. I have heard um, other institutions where maybe uh, the local practice has changed. Yeah. And then I have to give you a shout out because I know your ID Week poster was related to candidemia, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was actually looking at, at uh, our infectious disease consultation practices in our hospital. But, uh, you know, just along these lines, we did find that the ID consultants were more likely to recommend an eye exam. Um, but, you know, in all of the cases that we looked at, there were only 2.2% of them that had uh, endophthalmitis. So it fits with the rest of the literature. It's a very rare thing that we see. And so Yeah. All right. And so... This next section is is biased by my interest, and these are mostly pediatric sessions or transplant sessions or pediatric transplant ID-related topics. You know, the first one I was going to mention is the controversies and challenges in pediatric transplant ID. And I wanted to mention a, just kind of an update and a few notes from the antifungal section that Beth Naxted did. And, you know, she discussed the relatively recent phase three non-inferiority randomized control trial that looked at posiconazole versus voriconazole for primary treatment of invasive astrogelosis. Um, so that was from, I believe, February of this year by Martins and others. And this also was one of the top 10 mycology papers that Tom Patterson mentioned. So we're not going to dig into that one too much, but essentially found that posiconazole was non-inferior to Vori in regards to mortality. What I wanted to mention is that from a pediatric perspective, there's a new formulation of posiconazole on its way early next year, meaning 2022. Posiconazole initially was this like poorly absorbed liquid that needed frequent dosing, and it's just not great. And then there's an IV option, but there is an upcoming what's called noxophil powder mix, so she kind of mentioned the phase 1B dose escalation pediatric prophylaxis study, which I'll link to, but also just kind of mentioned their practice of likely 8 to 10 migs per kg per dose uh, for posiconazole, using it for treatment. And then for me, I think anytime we have a review of the newer, more novel antifungal agents, it is always greatly appreciated because we don't have a ton of data. And as you can guess, pediatric data is mostly non-existent. Um, but so for things like abrexafungerp and fosmanagabix, uh, hopefully I'm saying that one right, and then alorafem. And I, I do want to mention for people who are listening, if you don't already 
already attend these. PIDS does a virtual case conference of the immunocompromised child. And actually the very first session that was done, hosted by Boston Children's and was my co-fellow at the time, she's now attending, Fatima, talked about Alorafem and I think it was a really great session, but also just to plug the series in general. And they're all recorded on the PIDS website. So please check those out. I love them. So many exciting studies and uh, new fungal, antifungal agents that are out there, which I always love that at ID Week. Yeah. And worse. And the names just get worse and worse. Um, <laughs> anywho. So the um, next session I I always tell everyone to go to is the Mano a Mano, which is one of my favorite sessions. I actually have dreamed of having debate episodes on Febrile, but uh, kudos to the moderators and the guests because it takes a lot of work. And that is why I have not been able to get that off the ground yet. But so this is a pediatric session. It's sort of debate style. Um, And they usually cover uh, a couple controversies. They tend to cover data from both adult and peds because usually the answer to whatever you're asking is a a bit gray. The first one was clinical utility of next generation sequencing. So for those who don't know, this is a blood test that uses sequencing of microbial cell-free DNA. And then it rapidly detects bacteria or viruses or fungi or parasites, so that you get a readout of what cell-free DNA they found. So you've maybe heard of the brand name Carius, for example. You know, I think we all know that cost of this test is obviously an issue. And, you know, when it came out, it sort of has gotten billed as, could this be a liquid biopsy? Is this a blood test that we can do to avoid procedures in patients? And I think that it's unclear if that actually helps us avoid procedures, but I think it's a obviously nice thought and hopefully we'll have data on that at some at some point. But you know, it's like most things in ID. It needs thoughtful use as we figure out which patients are going to benefit from it. And it's a nice plug for diagnostic stewardship. And all institutions or hospitals have different sort of methods. But I think there's certainly places where the micro department has sort of gatekeepers and you guys can work together with ID consults to see who should get that test. And then the next session was on staph aureus line infections and to remove or retain the line, which in adults, there's no, (laughs) there's no question that line's got to come out. But I, I think sometimes in our pediatric patients that need, have difficult access issues and need longstanding lines that sometimes that conversation can be a little bit different. And so the age old question of our children, little adults uh, always comes up. And I think most people would say they are not little adults. Um, But that was a really good one. And then the last one, which I think you could talk about in adults or peds is the duration of treatment for bloodstream infections and neutropenic patients and whether we should do a fixed duration versus make it dependent on count recovery. I thought those topics were really awesome. So if you want more background on those, you could listen to that session. The next one that I have is sort of immunocompromised host, but not transplant. So ID complications associated with novel cellular and immunotherapies and cancer. And so this was an overview of CAR-T therapy. And so chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, which Basically, you're using genetically modified T-cells to fight cancer. And then there's the bispecific T-cell engagers or bites, so things like blenitumumab. I think this is a really great session whether or not you take care of patients who, who receive these therapies, or if you're not as familiar with them, they sort of take it back to the basics and begin with why do, why do we use these therapies, what do they do, and then sort of move into what are the 
complications and things that we have to think about as ID docs. I think the big take homes are that we have to understand that the complications like cytokine release syndrome and the toxicities from CAR T cell therapy tend to overlap a lot with infection and teasing those apart is very difficult and a challenge, I think, for everyone who takes care of these patients. It's a good reminder of emphasizing the concept of net state of immunosuppression, which we talk about a lot in transplant immunocompromised host ID, meaning that it's not just that one therapy they got, it's really sort of the spectrum and their history. And so for CAR T-cell recipients, they have a super high net state of immunosuppression because they've had generally extensive prior treatment They get lymphodepleting chemotherapy prior to their infusion. They may or may not have complications like cytokine release syndrome. And then the good reminder that CAR T-cell therapy leads to depletion of both malignant and normal healthy B-cell subsets. And so you may have heard of the concept of on-target and off-target. So on-target meaning the impact it has on the cancer cells, what it's supposed to do, but also off-target or off-tumor effects. So you may see B-cell aplasia, which can introduce different ID risks. And so Joshua Hill has this really nice summary slide that looks at CD19 CAR T-cells, which we use in ALL or B-cell lymphoma, and BCMA CAR T-cells, which are used with multiple myeloma, and sort of compared and contrasted. So cytokine release syndrome seems to be occur a little bit higher proportion in the BCMA CAR T-cells with maybe a slightly earlier presentation, but you're probably talking about the difference of a couple days, like one day versus three days. Um, and there seem to be more neurotoxicity in the CD19 CAR cells, but the infectious complications are, are kind of similar between the two. Um, I will put a link to their How I Treat Paper in Blood, where they talk about uh, their strategy. But I think what we know is that prophylaxis with antibiotics and how immunoglobulins are used in these patients is variable, and it's definitely not standardized. Um, But it's a really awesome area for future and ongoing research. The last uh, section I was going to highlight is the top practice-changing papers in transplant ID. They did five papers from solid organ transplant literature. So Judith Anisi did that. And then um, Mahina Body did five papers from the stem cell transplant group. And I will put a link to all 10 papers in our consult notes. But I just picked one of the solid organ papers and one of the stem cell papers to talk about. The solid organ one I picked was early beta-lactam concentrations and infectious complications after lung transplantation, which is by Tacone and others, and was an observational study of adult lung recipients who were given broad-spectrum beta-lactam prophylaxis, so cefepime, ceftaz, piptazo, or mirapenem, post-transplant, and then these patients had at least one therapeutic drug monitoring measure, so I might say TDM. Um, But basically, in their primary outcomes, they were looking at insufficient beta-lactam concentration based on if you had four times the MIC, but also looked at post-transplant infections and new post-transplant MDROs within 14 days. What is significant is they found 40% of patients uh, had insufficient drug concentrations based on that definition. And even though that's a pretty small cohort that they've had, it's pretty striking to see such a large proportion of patients who had low levels. Um, which probably is related to a variety of things, PK changes, you know, other issues related to fluids and capillary leakage if they're on renal replacement therapy, et cetera. But I think it's an interesting conversation starter to think about which patients need higher dosing 
which patients maybe would benefit from continuous infusions or thinking about uh, therapeutic drug monitoring. And so I actually, I am really sorry. I really wanted to watch the TDM lecture that, uh, not lecture, but the session, um, which I will catch eventually. But there was a whole separate session in ID Week about this topic, not necessarily in transplant, but on therapeutic drug monitoring of beta-lactams. And so I think that's really interesting thinking about how we can and will incorporate that into clinical practice and also accessibility. There's, I mean, I think at this point it's really independent labs and then some universities. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting and worth pointing out is that the number of insufficient drug concentration patients was lower in the group of patients with cystic fibrosis. And we generally think of those patients as vulnerable to underdosing. But I think it's specifically for that reason that they saw less underdosing because people already sort of had that in mind. So just an interesting, uh, interesting paper. So I'll put a link to that one. And then for the stem cell transplant group, there were a couple CMV papers um, and thinking about latermavir, but I was going to highlight the broad spectrum antibiotics and risk of graft first host disease in pediatric patients undergoing transplant for acute leukemia. So this was a large scale retrospective pediatric cohort study that looked at the relationship of antibiotics with acute graft first host disease in pediatric patients who were getting a transplant for acute leukemia. And what's really interesting, there is a consistent association between carbapenem use and acute graft-first-host disease, or GBHD. And not just that, that the timing was important. So carbapenem exposure before day zero, so pre-transplant, was strongly associated with acute GBHD. And they didn't really see this with cephalosporins, and sort of the penicillins were inconsistent. So just an interesting paper, and I think nice to see a larger pediatric transplant study that's highlighted. That, that uh, paper reminds me of the session on the gut microbiome, and, and he looked a lot at uh, stem cell transplant patients and the effect of antibiotics on the gut microbiome. And yeah. It, it seems to definitely play a role, which is a really intriguing area of study. Yeah. And so our last sort of clump of things, uh, we, we wrote miscellaneous because uh, they don't go together. We're just going to tell you about some sessions that we thought were, uh, were cool. So I'll throw it back over to Jonathan. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, this is definitely a little bit of a miscellaneous <laughs> one. I, this, uh, this session, uh, I think, has some of the best titles in it. Um, this one was called Big and Little Beasts and the Infectious Diseases They Cause. Uh, started off with a session called All Bark and Some Bite. Animal Bites was the main theme of this uh, session from uh, Andrew uh, Janowski. This lecture by no means settled the classic dog versus cat debate, but definitely brought it to light. So sorry for the uh, (laughs) dog folks out there. It turns out that dogs are the most common source of bite injury uh, in the United States. There's approximately 5 million bite injuries per year between dogs, cats, and humans. And four and a half million of the five million are from dogs alone. And so this is actually uh, primarily a pediatric problem, uh, especially in in little boys um, (laughs) who uh, most often get bit in the head and neck area as as small children. And then uh, more often in the arms and the legs as they grow older. Additionally, they saw that most often it was a family dog or a dog that someone knew about. And so it's not the the stray dog uh, very often, although it can be. And he actually found an association in a study that that the COVID-19 pandemic has been associated with an increase in dog bites due to more children staying at home with school out. And so 
It's and just all the a, pandemic puppies. So many people got pets during the pandemic. <laughs> the pandemic puppies. It's uh, just interesting to see all the effects of the pandemic that you really would not anticipate. And that was not one that I was uh, thinking about. Uh, fret not for the pro uh, dog folks. The uh, pro cat folks have some problems too. If you're going to be bit by an animal... Uh, you don't want it to be a cat, at least when it comes to infectious diseases. Those are the ones that are associated with the highest risk of infection. About half of cat bites uh, result in an infection, whereas it's uh, 20% or less for both human and uh, dog bites. Just as a reminder, most of these infections are frequently polymicrobial, averaging about uh, seven organisms per bite. And uh, in cats and dogs, you know, it's commonly pasturella is the classic organism, but also staph and strep, which are not mouth organisms, but rather inoculated into the wound as a result of the bite through the skin. In human infections, also staph and strep are very common. And then there's always that sneaky Iconella that we have to remember as well. And then anaerobes are quite prevalent in this, uh, in this group, as well as the aerobic population is mentioned. The appropriate treatment, amoxiclav, is always the one that we think of. Thinking of alternatives for patients with penicillin allergies, you want to cover staph and strep, as well as anaerobes. So something like trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, combined with metronidazole or clindamycin is a, an appropriate option. The other thing we worry about is uh, other infectious diseases that can be transmitted through these bites. So rabies is always the one that we worry about, but it's primarily in rabbit animals, and there's not a lot of that in the United States. So things to think about are tetanus has been associated with it. Um, dogs and cats' mouths are frequently uh, exposed to dirt, etc. And so that is uh, an area of concern. And so you need to give tetanus prophylaxis just as you would to any other type of nail wound, etc. And then there, interestingly, have been human bites that have been associated with the transmission of HIV, hepatitis B and C, and syphilis, of all things. Those are pretty low-risk things, but as an infectious disease doctor, you want to think about prophylaxis, and so you want to really assess the risk of that injury for transmission of other bloodborne pathogens. And so lastly, he has the, a link to a great article. It's a clinical microbiology review article that is on the microbiology of just various animal bite wound infections that includes things such as bears, sharks, Tasmanian devils, alligators, and Komodo dragons. <laughs> so in case you ever need that information, which if you have a zoo nearby, someone may look your way as to what antibiotics you need if uh, someone is bit by a Komodo dragon, uh, that is the article to look at. The uh, next session was from Stephen Cole, who is actually a veterinary microbiologist, so maybe not your usual guest at ID Week, but he has an interest in multidrug-resistant organisms and, as he puts it, companion animals. So he highlights a couple interesting organisms that are staph species uh, associated with dogs and cats that you may or may not have seen uh, in your career. One is Staphylococcus sued intermedius. So this is actually a coagulase positive staph species that frequently gets uh, identified as staph aureus incorrectly by traditional methods, although that has changed in the Maldi-Toff era where you may see this organism now be identified as a result of that. And it has a lot of virulence factors very similar to staph aureus, but it also has a urease mechanism that causes the formation of urinary stones in dogs which is similar to Staph saprophyticus as a urinary staph bug. This particular organism has been associated with 
human uh, disease and is known for carrying the MEK-A gene as well and often has uh, very limited antibiotic options. The other staph species that he talked about was Staphylococcus schlepherii, which causes otitis externa in dogs and also is methicillin resistant. So these are common um, cat and dog infections, but have been associated with human infections at times. Along those lines was looking at uh, MRSA, which um, has been seen in cats and dogs, but is a pretty uncommon organism for them, but apparently is much more common in horses, which have the U500 strain that is associated with them. And there have been reports of transmission of uh, MRSA between people and their companion animals. Potential epidemiologic links to keep in mind, uh, I guess, maybe in someone with a recurrent staphylococcal infection, uh, that could be where it's coming from. Uh, additionally, CRE has been seen in animals pretty rarely, but uh, it is also something that could be transmitted. Those plasmids could definitely uh, be transmitted across any of those modalities. And then uh, the last lecture was from Camille Cotton, and this is definitely up Sarah's alley here. This was on <laughs> animal-related infections in the immunocompromised host. And she goes through a lot of stuff that's been highlighted on prior febrile episodes with peritransplant education to our patients about risk mitigation around animals and uh, how to avoid them and decrease your risk of infectious complications. Really the importance of getting an adequate exposure history in our immunocompromised patients not only when they present with infectious symptoms, but also um, around the transplant to try to decrease those risks. And so she uh, really goes through a lot of infections that are been identified, which if there is an infection that is in an animal, it's probably been identified in an immunocompromised host, <laughs> very long tables. But she presented this really interesting case of cryptococcus um, in which they ultimately found there were some birds nesting in a, a vent in their house. Oh, no. And so uh, just a pearl here is infections associated with birds. Uh, always keep in mind avian influenza, but also Campylobacter and Salmonella and E. coli infections that are kind of GI problems. And then also histoplasmosis, cryptococcus, and then kind of the infamous psittacosis. Uh, so look out for... Uh, which animals uh, your your patients are being exposed to. I think she was saying at her center, they wouldn't really accept a transplanted organ in a patient that had a bird. That was like a condition of transplant because they've had so many infections related to birds in their population. I have learned to fear the pet bird <laughs> in a transplant patient. Yeah. Now that we've finished up the animal section here in the miscellaneous category, the next one is clinical pearls and outpatient ID. Outpatient ID, I think, is a really underappreciated area. It's something that we don't always get the most exposure to, but is something that we often will have to do in our practice. And so there's a lot of kind of unusual situations that we get put in in the outpatient ID uh, setting. Patients with positive serologies for things like herpes simplex virus or Epstein-Barr virus, patients being concerned that they've acquired a sexually transmitted infection that they may or may not have actually had based on a serologic test, or they're concerned that their chronic fatigue syndrome may be related to this uh, EBV serology. Other uh, chronic pelvic pain syndromes, and then uh, conditions such as delusional parasitosis. And so all of these can be uncomfortable as far as the conversations, but they had some really good advice as to how to approach these situations. So one is it's it's so important to empathize with the patient. No matter the reason why they're there, they're clearly struggling for some reason. 
And we need to listen to them and their concerns and validate those concerns and see how we can help them get the optimal care for whatever the underlying condition, whether it's an infection or, or if it's not. And one of the strategies to really set yourself up for success is to really prepare in advance for these cases, to read about them beforehand, be very thorough with looking at what tests they've had before, because they may have had the, these gigantic workups for their parasites or their pelvic pain syndromes. And you really need to know all of those test results. So that way the patient knows that you're uh, aware of their case and also not to duplicate any unnecessary testing. One of the things is to learn how to deal with kind of medically unexplained and poorly defined diagnoses. And it's, you know, you have to empathize with the patient. These things aren't well understood oftentimes and being there for the patient is, is important. And then also the need to set limits. If you're getting, you know, 10 electronic medical record alerts per, bit, per day in your inbox, then, you know, you have to learn how to set limits for those situations. And, and those are all skills. Something that is a really common situation that we deal with that was discussed is, is the issue of a positive syphilis serology in a patient with really advanced dementia and how to approach that. It's a really difficult situation. You're not able to get the um, full history from the patient themselves. It can be really disruptive to the family members trying to go through that history. And they really outlined that there's a need for shared decision-making in these situations um, as for what the optimal treatment is. And part of that has to do with the prognosis where, um, you know, treatment of uh, really advanced neurosyphilis may not really offer much benefit. It probably stops it in its tracks. Uh, but depending on how advanced uh, the case of dementia is, it may not uh, change the outcome that much. And then also the difficulties with obtaining a lumbar puncture and providing continuous infusion penicillin in, in that population. And so really discussing whether those interventions are worth it or not uh, with the patient and their family is, uh, I thought, something that I need to work on better for these situations. It's very easy to recommend 14 days of treatment or an LP, but it's a little bit harder to have those conversations, but it's something I think that's important for us to do. The last section that I believe I'm covering is uh, an area that, that I am particularly interested in, which is antimicrobial stewardship. And this was a, a controversies uh, session, which these are these are my favorite because uh, these are things that are hard to read about in a book. They're really um, yeah. good to see different viewpoints. So one was uh, from Erin McCreary, who I always love listening to on her podcast. And uh, she went over the importance of diagnostic stewardship. So this is an area uh, we do a lot with in a microbial stewardship, where we're really trying to use the right drug at the right dose for the right for the right bacteria, but in this situation, she, she emphasizes, you know, we need to have the right test at the right time and the right patient with the right action as a result of that test. And she goes through options to intervene as a stewardship team in the ordering and collecting phase. So, you know, developing order sets and putting restrictions on who can order which tests, uh, such as like a urine culture, or you know, if you're going to order a C diff test that. Uh, you know, they need to have loose watery stools. Also the processing phase that happens. So instituting algorithms where you may have like a C. diff that goes through an antigen test first, followed by a toxin, followed by a PCR test. And so those kind of multi-step algorithms help to sort through whether something is a true pathogen or whether it may just represent colonization. And so using these tests result in changes in patient management, and that's really a stewardship uh, role. And then there's the reporting phase. So these are, involve the nudges in the, in the comments section and the interpretation of the test. 
uh, that is something, you know, suggesting that that C. diff result may represent colonization can kind of change the outcome of treatment. And then also suppressing extraneous test results. So some institutions will suppress susceptibilities on certain antibiotics. And so that can also be a method to really improve the high value care that we provide. The next session was from Megan Jeffries, and I thought this one was really controversial. It was a, she has a interest in uh, utilizing time for antimicrobial stewardship teams the, in the most efficient way. And so her question was, is de-escalating the spectrum of the antibiotic worth the effort? And so spectrum going from an anti-pseudomonal agent to a second generation cephalosporin, for example. And so she looks through the data on this practice and really shows that there's no definitive evidence demonstrating that de-escalation of the spectrum improves patient outcomes uh, or resistance or, you know, development, uh, development of C. diff. But I thought this was not what I have been taught by any means. Uh, but sometimes there's not always the strongest evidence for what we do. Rather, it's based, you know, kind of on theory. So she emphasizes that the stewardship team should be focusing on decreasing the total duration of antibiotics and switching people from IV to PO uh, as more evidence-based interventions that will decrease the risk of C. diff by um, getting, them, uh, getting them back into their home microbiome. Something I think we just need to develop uh, more evidence base for, but uh, an interesting, interesting question. And then the last part of that was from Allison Tribble looking at handshake stewardship. This was a good overview session for those interested in learning about the different types of stewardship, looking at prospective audit and feedback versus pre-authorization programs, and then handshake stewardship, and how different modalities like in-person versus remote have different effects on stewardship and looking at the evidence for that. So that was a good overview for me and looking at, you know, maybe we need to do more handshake stewardship in certain units or on certain teams to help make an impact because that kind of in-person one-on-one time, so to speak, could have a bigger impact. The last sort of miscellaneous one I had, for those who are interested in medical education, there's a ton of really great med ed sessions. So uh, language Matters, Integrating Inclusive Language in ID Education and Patient Care, Re-Envisioning Your ID Curricula Through a Non-Oppressive Anti-Racist Lens, Strategies for Optimizing ID Case Conference. So this is a really great way to help you frame how you think about case conference, because I am a firm believer that there, there is not any case that's not, quote, good for conference. It's just on how you frame it and and what sort of your learning goals and your audience are. And they they sort of kind of voiced a similar sentiment, I think. And then developing and maintaining expertise, deliberate practice for ID learners of all ages. I've actually really enjoyed learning about or thinking about mastery learning and deliberate practice. And I, I do think that sometimes people think of it in the setting of sports and sort of physical tasks like procedures. But I think it's important to remember that we can use deliberate practice in cognitive exercises as well. And so there's a really nice slide that sort of talks through how you can think about that and like concrete ways to look at the things you probably do already as deliberate practice. So when you go to a case conference, when you attend M&M, when you listen to a podcast, um, as well as when you discuss cases with your, your peers at your home institution. These sessions are always great because they sort of take these 
concepts and try to break them down in a way that you can apply them. You can leave that session and apply them the next day. I will end by saying that ID Bug Bowl is super fun. I would like to say congratulations to UCLA. And also that if you guys listen to Febrile, you will get tons of those questions. So I hope that people will, <laughs> will listen next year and that you'll be on the team and you'll get a bunch of questions, right? And so hopefully we'll see people in person in DC next year. Although I will say the one thing I really do like about the virtual conference is the poster abstract, like being able to look at them on the screen and sort of sit down with poster. I feel like I actually look at a lot more things that way. So I kind of hope there's some sort of hybrid in, in the middle, you know, not that I don't miss like lugging my awkward <laughs> poster tube around. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love uh, being able to do it a little bit from home to an extent. I mean, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I definitely miss out on being able to meet people in person and get to really network with folks that I haven't met before. But, uh, you know, being able to, like, stop and pause and go back and watch something later, I definitely think is something that would yeah. be nice to have in the future. I'm really grateful for Jonathan coming on the show and doing this with me. Any any final thoughts, Jonathan? <laughs> I don't think so. This has been great, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode and uh, hanging in there with a couple alternative formats for the podcast. Uh, we acknowledge that we didn't cover a lot of topics such as HIV in particular, but we will try to link to any other available ID Week recaps in the consult notes. And if you're sad or mad about anything that we missed, there is always Twitter and perhaps we can have some febrile correspondence for ID Week next year. We hope that this was helpful, but we'll be back with some awesome cases in the next few episodes. So until then, stay safe and I'll see you next time.